When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. New York City, mid-January afternoon, 1968. Cold and gray out, more than usual. The first three weeks of 1968 were historically cold. Highs in the teens, low temperatures in the single digits. But young people lined up in the biting cold air to buy movie tickets. Released a few weeks earlier, December 22, 1967, The Graduate, directed by newcomer Mike Nichols and starring an unknown actor named Dustin Hoffman, was now a runaway hit. The Graduate did only so-so on opening weekend, but sales took off after that. It went on to become the highest-grossing film release of 1967. <laughs> yes, yes, we know. It was really the biggest movie of 1968, but uh, Hollywood has their own way of doing things. Anyhow, uh, Clive Davis decided to skip work one afternoon and see what it was all about. A lawyer by trade, Clive had worked his way up from junior attorney in the legal department to president of the company in the space of seven years. Clive was 35 at the time, young enough to be considered something of a wonderkin at Columbia. Certainly, he held a position of high responsibility for one his age. Columbia's parent company, the CBS Corporation, was riding high, arguably the most successful media enterprise on the planet at the moment. Columbia Records was the biggest of the big six record companies. CBS broadcasting affiliates were top of the heap in every major market in America. Nationally, the CBS television network dominated the ratings throughout the 60s. Sunday nights still belonged to Ed Sullivan. The anchor of the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite, was the most trusted and respected voice on the airwaves. But in the summer of 1967, when Clive took over at Columbia, dark clouds loomed on the horizon. Despite the towering presence of Bob Dylan on the artist roster, earnings were down. Columbia was losing market share to the other bigs, and to small, fast-on-their-feet indie labels like Motown and Atlantic. What's more, Columbia had a rep with rock musicians, and it wasn't a good one. Stodgy, stubborn, stuck in the past, stuck up the ass. Old school, all the way. <laughs> 
Miller was head of the artist and repertoire in our department at Columbia, and he'd been Clive Davis's mentor there. Not to put too fine of a point on it, but Mitch was clueless. A likable enough guy, but badly out of touch with changing tastes and attitudes. More than a full decade into the rock and roll era, and Mr. Singalong with Mitch was still convinced it was a passing fad. He was openly contemptuous of the music, its practitioners, and its fans. Once Clive was in, Mitch got eased out to pasture. Then Clive went to Monterey Pop, swooped in and poached Janis Joplin for Columbia. He made new hires in A&R and put them to work finding and signing rock and roll talent. Clive was looking to shake things up all over the company, and record release strategy was a big area he wanted to rethink. As the end of the year approached, he had a flash of marketing insight. An afternoon at the movies convinced him. He was right. April, come she will. When streams are ripe and swelled with rain. Paul Simon and his neighborhood buddy, Art Garfunkel, were both just 26 years old at the beginning of 1968, but they were already music business veterans, especially Paul Simon. They had three albums under their belt, and the last two had been solid hits for Columbia, but it had been over a year since the release of Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time. Paul had new songs, and the sweet singing duo weren't polishing them up. These guys toured a lot, over 100 gigs in 1967, mostly playing college venues. As the year turned over, Simon and Garfunkel were back at Columbia working on the songs that would make up their fourth album, Bookends. It was slow going. Uh, This was the first time Columbia was willing to let Paul really stretch out in the studio, and he took full advantage. Clive had been hanging around. He heard some of the early takes, and he was thrilled. His legendary golden ears were tingling. He knew he had a smash in the making here. He was thrilled on several levels. Like millions of other fans, he appreciated Paul's smart, empathetic songwriting and art's soaring angelic tenor. He also appreciated them on a business and a personal level. Nice guys with good work ethic, and what's more, they were native New Yorkers just like him, a couple of guys from the old neighborhood. Clive Davis has often said his favorite act at Columbia was Simon and Garfunkel. But Bookins was still months away from being ready. Clive had an idea, a way to tee the new album up and make it even more of a smash. Movie soundtrack albums were a long-standing thing at Columbia. They released a lot of them. Mitch Miller was big on soundtracks. Clive Davis, not so much. But The Graduate, uh, this was a different kind of soundtrack. He started asking around about it. The Simon and Garfunkel songs work great in the movie, he was told. But there's only a few of them, and we've already put most of them out on earlier recordings. Kind of a thin album here. He asked Paul, is there enough there? The answer, 
was a flat and final no. Paul Simon made a nice sum, $25,000, for his work on The Graduate, but he had not really enjoyed the experience. He wrote a couple of originals expressly for the movie that were outright rejected by Mike Nichols. But Paul had an incomplete tune, a skiffle shuffle, with some great words and Everly Brothers harmonies. The working title was Mrs. Roosevelt. He played it for Mike Nichols. Nichols thought it was amazing. He suggested a different title. All this went on during the previous summer while The Graduate was being filmed out in California. A lot had happened since then. So Clive Davis decided to see for himself. He grabbed his coat and scarf and headed down the street to the movie theater. In his own telling, Clive picked up on a couple of things right away during the opening sequence. The first was that the sound of silence played over the opening. It was integral. It was not just wallpaper or background or mood. The song was commenting on what was happening on screen. It was part of the narrative. This was something new. The second, and this was the big one to a vinyl salesman like Clive, the response from the young people in the theater. To the audience members over 30 years of age, The Graduate was one film. To the folks under 30, it was another film entirely. With The Graduate, Mike Nichols had clearly tapped into something essential with the younger audience and used music very effectively to do it. When the film ended, Clive Davis headed back to his office and started making calls and setting up meetings. Simon and Garfunkel would be featured on a new soundtrack album. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, you got it. Ha-ha, the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome back to Rock and Roll Archaeology, a Pantheon podcast. Christian Swain here. I am the Rock and Roll Archaeologist behind the mic in San Francisco. Uh, Let's do some real quick housekeeping and get into another chapter. 
Oh, yes. Website, website, website. We've got a website. It's all happening there. You can go and check out all of our shows at pantheonpodcast.com. Yep. Pantheonpodcast.com. Okay. That's it. That's the business. Short and sweet. So, friends, fans, fellow diggers, answer me this. Is rock and roll a big enough tent to include the brainy, gentle, and contemplative sounds of someone like Paul Simon (laughs) and the gut punch of visceral immediacy of someone like Lou Reed? And what city is big enough, both physically and spiritually, to be home for two such artists? And as we begin to close out the 60s and open up the 1970s, where does it all end? Where do we end up? To a large extent... We've been telling the 60s story by hopping around geographically. Liverpool, London, Detroit, Michigan, and Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Back over to London and then out to L.A. and San Francisco. Today, it's New York City. And this is a big episode uh, for a big town. So, let's do it. Right now, welcome to Chapter 17, Bookends. We really want to bring this up before we launch into the discussion today. (laughs) We are a bunch of walking, talking contradictions here at Rock and Roll Archaeology. On the one hand, our first love is dirty, sexy rock and roll. Uh, Big, rude noise, rough around the edges, urgent and authentic. We love the spectacle, the larger-than-life rock shows, loud, nasty, bring it. All that stuff grabbed us when we were still kids, and it has never let us go. And yet, we are huge fans of Paul Simon across his entire career. And Paul's music is basically none of these things. It's smart, polished, nuanced. Uh, One could even call it cerebral. The musicianship is exquisite. The production values are immaculate. Nothing about it is flashy, edgy, or out of control. No big live show spectacle either. Simon and Garfunkel concerts are more college lecture than rock show. Two guys in turtlenecks and sport coats, a pair of microphones, a stool, and a water pitcher. Simple lighting. The audiences were quiet and attentive. Save your applause for the end, please. Stomp and holler, stand up and shout, and you'll get shushed from the stage by the performers themselves. Over the years, Paul has been knocked by some for being a little too perfect even been called phony or inauthentic. Uh, But we think that's a bullshit take, kind of a haters gonna hate thing. It's true, very true, that throughout Paul Simon's musical career, you see professionalism, shrewd calculation, intentionality. We just happen to think that those are good things. In a showbiz career that spans from the days of Elvis to the age of Spotify... Paul has had his setbacks, including forays into film and theater that didn't work out. But when it comes to music, once Paul Simon found his own voice, he has been nothing but consistently great at it. He's never missed with his albums, never. All of them are 
quality efforts, and his best work is towering, magnificent, and it has easily stood the test of time. Time it was, and what a time it was, it was A time of innocence, a time of confidences Long ago it must be, I have a photograph Preserve your memories, they're all that's left you in summary, Paul Simon's story is smart middle-class kid from Queens discovers music, works hard at it, and becomes very good. It takes a few years, but he's a big success. Things turn out pretty great. He wasn't abused or neglected as a youngster. Uh, quite the opposite. His family was warm and supportive. Lou Simon was an accomplished musician in his own right. Bell was an elementary school teacher, sharp as they come, and she doted on her two sons, Paul and Eddie. He's a smallish guy, five foot three in height, but that didn't stop him from being a star athlete during his teenage years. Paul was a good student, popular with his classmates. Along with his buddy Art Garfunkel, he attended an advanced program that enabled them to graduate together a year early. Then Paul went on to Queens College, walking distance from the little row house in Kew Gardens, and got his degree. Never had a drug problem, no big run-ins with the law, a private guy who stays out of the spotlight, except when he's working. He didn't get screwed by the record company. In fact, from the start, Paul Simon was very shrewd in his business dealings and became a wealthy man as a consequence. Not exactly a crazy, edgy rock and roll life. Different from most of the stories we've told so far. But it's a good story, just the same. Let's hear from one of our favorites, the excellent rock writer, Robert Hilburn. Paul's search for a new sound to jumpstart his writing arrived on the family radio one morning in May 1957 in the form of the Everly Brothers' Bye Bye Love, a fresh, potent mixture of country, pop, and rock. As much as Paul loved doo-wop and Elvis, he had been content to listen to them on the radio. Records were expensive, nearly $1 for a single, or roughly the cost of 20 packs of baseball cards or 10 comic books, but he didn't want to have to wait until Bye Bye Love came on the radio. He wanted his own copy, and he rode two buses for nearly an hour to Triborough Records in Jamaica, Queens, to get it. Bye Bye Love, Bye Bye Happiness, Hello Loneliness, I think I'm gonna cry. In the summer of 1957, Paul and Artie were headed into their senior year at Forest Hills High in Queens. They were both 15, going on 16 at the time. Neighborhood buddies and classmates going back to grade school. The musical partnership began a couple of years earlier. Paul heard Artie sing for the first time at a talent show when they were both in elementary school. They were 11 at the time, so for several years, their friendship was stickball games and baseball cards and riding their bikes to the park. Life could be a dream, life could be a dream. Do, 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 life could be a dream. If I could take you up in paradise up above. If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love. The boys listened avidly to the radio. Alan Freed was on the air every night in New York in those years. On the weekends, like a zillion other American teenagers, they tracked the hits on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Childhood piano lessons didn't stick, but Paul got a guitar for his 13th birthday. 
He started writing simple songs, imitating what he heard on the radio. But he hadn't really hit on it yet, hadn't heard that sound for him and his sweet singing musical partner. But when he heard the Everleys, well, there it is right there. That's the sound. Paul sold his cherished baseball card collection and bought an expensive new gadget, a tape recorder. In September, Wake Up Little Susie came out. Within a few days of hearing it, Paul came up with his first hit song, an Everly Brothers knockoff titled Hey Schoolgirl. Okay, so it's not going to change the world or anything, but it's a cute song. They cut in October, just a few days after Paul's 16th birthday. Papa Lou Simon played stand-up bass. They called themselves Tom and Jerry, and the song came out on King Records in the first week of November 1957. Hey School Girl was an obvious knockoff, but back in those pre-Beatle and Bob Dylan days, knockoff records were a thing. Lots of people did them. So we won't uh, knock it too much. It must have been a blast for the guys. For a couple of three months there at the end of 1957, they were teenage rock stars. Got a record on the charts, number 49 to be exact, and you can hear it on the Alan Freed Show. Around Thanksgiving, they got to lip-sync it on American Bandstand. They were neighborhood heroes. And that was it for a while. High school ended, and their paths diverged. Paul lived at home and studied at Queens College, while Art headed off to study architecture at Columbia University in Manhattan. Five years went by, where they would only occasionally cross paths. Here's Robert Hilbert again, author of Paul Simon, The Life. This is from our interview with Robert on our Deeper Digs and Rock podcast. We posted it in June of 2018. He spent five years trying to write songs, all copied off the radio, just like Hey School Girl was. Yeah, hey School Girl yeah. is not a good song. He's copying what's on the radio. There's no imagination in any of those songs. He's recording demos for other artists. Uh, and in fact, he was doing things so terrible as one of the songs he recorded, there was a hit in the 50s called I Want to Be the Lipstick on Your Collar. Yeah, Con okay. Connie Francis. Uh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah. so the song Paul records, I want to be the lipstick on your lips. Now, is there anything cornier than that? But the, he spent five years doing that stuff. Right. And, I, and, and Simon fans for years have been trying to find all of those great demos and those great recordings and stuff. And I've, I've, you know, I've got a three-disc set of maybe 50 of them, and there's not one minute... In any that you of go, that. there's genius. Yeah, there's. you wouldn't think genius. You wouldn't think that guy's even worth listening to. A quick little show note, uh, just for the sake of clarity. That was Robert Hilburn you just heard. In several other spots in this podcast, we use excerpts from the audiobook, which was done by a voiceover actor. This was done at Robert's request, and we were happy to oblige him. Okay, back to the story. So it's fall of 1963. Paul graduated earlier that summer with a degree in English, and he was newly enrolled at NYU Law School. All through college, he continued writing and recording songs, and, taken from Robert Hilburn, they weren't very good. But he met people, learned his way around the studio, and learned a lot about the business side. 
What was missing from Paul Simon's songs during those years was, well, Paul Simon. He had a clever knack for imitation, but he hadn't found his own voice yet. Oh, once he did, there was no looking back. Robert Hilburn, once again. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence After years of trying to write teen pop hits largely by copying what was on the radio, he felt that he was at a dead end. Inspired by the emergence of the folk movement in New York's Greenwich Village, he vowed to reach inside to find out if he truly had anything of his own to say in a song. Then his world changed with the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. His mother, Belle, remembered that he spent hours despondent in his bedroom. Not long after the tragedy, Simon returned to the bathroom, switched off the lights per his custom, and started softly finger-picking on the guitar. It was around then that he hit some warmly evocative notes that he played over and over again. Slowly, he began reflecting on thoughts that had been nagging at him for months. As he sat alone, these words eventually burst forth. Hello, darkness, my old friend. That voices never share. No one did. The Sound of Silence was a huge step forward. True, it's a bit of a knockoff. Paul wasn't completely cured of the habit yet, but it's a very good knockoff of the one and only Bob Dylan, so we're not going to nitpick here. It's got some Paul Simon in it, and it's a flat-out great song. In some ways, the pacing of the terse, moody lyrics tell a solid, coherent story. The tight musicianship and clean production, in some ways, we think it's actually superior to much of what Dylan was doing at the time. Throw in some soaring, spine-tingling harmony singing from Art Garfunkel and the fact that America was going through a big folk music revival at the time and The Sound of Silence was an immediate smash which put Simon and Garfunkel on the proverbial map. All of that's true, except for the immediate part. The song didn't take off at first. Neither did the first Simon and Garfunkel album on Columbia, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., released in the fall of 1964. As 1964 came to a close, Paul was not exactly discouraged, but probably feeling pretty frustrated. Certainly, he'd had enough of the folk scene in New York. Artie was in grad school at Columbia U studying advanced mathematics. Paul decided to strike out on his own once again, go to England and keep looking for his own distinctive voice. Playing folk clubs as a solo act during that gloomy, drizzly English winter he wrote most of the songs that would end up on the second Simon and Garfunkel album. I hear the drizzle of the rain Like a memo 
memory it falls Soft and warm continuing Tapping on my roof and walls Tom Wilson oversaw the making of that second album, The Sound of Silence, released in 1965 to good critical reviews and strong sales. Only in his early 30s, but already a respected, sought-after producer, Tom was tall, dark, and handsome, the only African-American line producer working at Columbia in those years. Sharp dresser, urbane, witty, Harvard degree, Tom had a solid resume producing jazz records, and he was looking to branch out into pop, rock, and folk. He had a high element of cool, recalled Paul Simon many years later, kind of a musical Obama. Tom was mentored by the legendary John Hammond. We talked about John in earlier episodes. Tom Wilson stood by his boss in the early days when the other producer snickered and called the Bob Dylan signing John Hammond's Folly. Towards the end of the sessions for the breakthrough second album, The Freewheel and Bob Dylan, Bob asked John Hammond to step aside as producer and let Tom Wilson take over. Tom produced the next three Dylan albums and was at the helm during the 1965 recording sessions for Like a Rolling Stone. Wilson had signed Simon Garfunkel to Columbia in early 64 on the strength of a demo of Sound of Silence Paul played for him in his office one afternoon. Tom wasn't really interested in another solo folk singer or songwriter. Uh, Bob Dylan was already sucking all the oxygen out of that particular room. But he was open to the idea of a duo. And that's when Art Garfunkel got a call from his on-again, off-again friend and musical collaborator, Paul Simon. We will come back to Simon and Garfunkel in a bit to catch up with them as we begin to close out the 60s. Right now, we will take one of those interesting forks in the road that sometimes come up and follow Tom Wilson. sessions for Highway 61 Revisited, Bob Dylan let Columbia know he no longer required Tom Wilson's services. More accurately, it was Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, but no matter, bottom line, Tom was out as Bob Dylan's producer. Tom had produced Like a Rolling Stone, which became the most unlikely number one hit ever, at least up to that point. That same summer of 65, 
He added drums and electric instrumentation to the sound of silence and turned Simon and Garfunkel's gentle folk lament into a radio-friendly smash. Along with the Birds cover of Mr. Tambourine Man, these songs ushered in the folk rock revolution. Thanks in no small part to Tom Wilson, American rockers finally came up with their answer to the British invasion, and it was an emphatic answer. Tom Wilson, who sadly died in 1978 at the age of just 47, was a classy guy, not one to gossip or talk smack, but people close to him knew he was proud of his success with Dylan and stung by the rejection. So, in 1966, he left Columbia and took a job running Verve Records out of Los Angeles. Verve was a small label with a big reputation as the studio home of West Coast jazz. A lot of greats recorded at Verve. MGM bought them up a few years earlier, but uh, the MGM honchos gave Tom wide latitude when it came to -to day-to-day operations. There is something to be said about being a big fish in a small pond. Verve continued as a small but prestigious jazz label, but Tom branched out a little. His first year, he signed a couple of really interesting, unusual rock acts. One we've already met, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. The other was the Velvet Underground. So at the top of the podcast, we talked about the dirty, sexy rock and roll and how much we love it. (laughs) Well, we've made it to that part now. Here goes. Hey, white boy, what you doing uptown? I immediately related to the music, which had a throbbing surfer beat. I had never listened closely to Lou Reed's lyrics and recognized what strong poetry they contained. The upstairs room at Max's was small, perhaps holding fewer than a hundred people, and as the Velvets moved deeper into their set, we began to move as well. That's Patti Smith from her really good memoir, Just Kids, published in 2010. Here's Anthony DeCurtis from his 2017 biography of Lou Reed. Before the Velvet Underground and Nico, there was no such thing as underground or alternative rock. You either had hits or you didn't. There was no other code to live by. The Velvet Underground made it possible for rock musicians to make the same appeal to posterity that poets, novelists, playwrights, and painters made before them. So the Velvets were one of those bands that didn't do much commercially, but punched way above their weight in terms of their lasting influence and staying power. We'll start with something they used to call drugstore records, and a company called Pickwick. We talked before about knockoff records and how they were a thing in the early days. There actually was an entire small industry dedicated to churning out knockoffs and covers, They sold the records for about half of what the big companies would charge for the real thing. 
Back in the day, drugstores and discount department stores would carry them, usually near the comic books and the candy bars, because they were marketed to kids and teenagers and their gullible parents. Pickwick was a company that made these drugstore records. In 1963, they hired a recent graduate of Syracuse University, one Lewis Allen Reed, as a junior member of their in-house writing and production staff. Between cranking out forgettable songs with titles like Do the Ostrich and I've Got a Tiger in My Tank, Lou Reed would also play guitar in the recording sessions in the cramped, depressed little studio at Pickwick. Do the Ostrich was unexpectedly and inexplicably a minor hit. Pickwick had Lou throw together a band to perform it on local TV shows. One of those musicians was a lanky Welshman with a droll wit and a taste for the avant-garde, John Cale. John's pedigree was impressive, musical prodigy, and classically trained, multi-instrumentalist. He was in New York on a work-study program sponsored by the eminent conductor Leonard Bernstein. He was ostensibly in America to immerse himself in the latest trends in classical music. But John shared Lou's passion for early rock and roll. Chess and Sun Records, Chuck and Elvis, Buddy Holly and Little Richard. John also had contacts in the art scene in Manhattan, got around a little bit, knew some of the same people Lou did. And John Kill was fairly new at it, but he had become an enthusiastic drug taker. His new friend, Lou Reed, was streetwise. He knew where to cop the good stuff. It's just a restless feeling by my side. Andy Warhol thought Valerie Solanus was trying to get him in trouble, set him up on an obscenity charge. He might have been kidding. It's hard to tell with Andy. Valerie had been hanging around on the fringes of the factory scene for a while, and the whole time she'd been pushing this script of hers on him. She had authored a play called Up Your Ass and was shopping it aggressively, looking for a producer. And when we say aggressively, we are not being metaphoric. Valerie cornered people, pushed buttons, wouldn't take no for an answer. She might have been crazy, and she turned out to be dangerous. But Valerie was not a hack. The play had its moments. And the SCUM Manifesto, SCUM is an acronym for the Society to Cut Up Men, is some tough-minded, uncompromising agiprop, a broadside salvo of feminist rage. And let's get real for a second. 
Valerie said something that needed to be said about left politics in America during those years. See, for all the talk of liberation and equality, the new left was just another boys' club. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the 60s counterculture in general, if you listen to this podcast, then you know we sympathize with these movements and their goals. But they were deeply compromised by the same old patriarchy, the same old hateful notions of sexism and homophobia ingrained into the very institutions they opposed. It was a big, glaring hypocrisy. Someone needed to call it out. Valerie Solanus, always angry, bad, crazy Valerie, was willing to go there. Andy Warhol, pop artist, producer and auteur, lover of the strange in the outre, was not. I told Lou and John repeatedly, you know, you guys are too good for this. Why don't you try and make it as a band? I thought the visual effects of the exploding plastic inevitable were stupid and corny. I thought the whip dancing was stupid and corny. And I thought Barbara Rubin's slide projections were stupid and corny. The exploding plastic inevitable was just like kindergarten. It had nowhere near the power of the music. The music was the real stuff. That's Danny Fields, quoted in a great book, Please Kill Me, An Uncensored Oral History of Punk. If you recall episode 15 of this podcast, we talked about the exploding plastic inevitable. The EPI was Andy's thing. His big, everything, all at once, multimedia happening. The Velvets were the rock band component. Anyway, Danny Fields was right. Danny Fields was right about a lot of things. Danny got Electra Records to sign the MC5 and Iggy Pop. A little later on, he got the Ramones their deal. He'll come up again. So, it's summer of 68. Lou and the Velvets are out on the West Coast recording at Verve and playing clubs to promote the second album, White Light, White Heat. The second album made about the same as the first one, made enough to recoup costs. Their record sales were nothing special, but the Velvets worked hard, made money playing out. They did a lot of shows, mostly on the East Coast. They were especially fond of playing in and around Boston. Brian Eno semi-famously said only 30,000 people bought that first Velvet Underground album, but every one of them must have started a band. So by 1968, the Velvets were now without Nico. No more Andy Warhol, so long to the exploding plastic inevitable. They were now a stripped-down, four-piece rock-and-roll outfit struggling to make it on their own terms outside of Andy's orbit. In Lou Reed's calculation, Andy and Nico had served their purpose, got them noticed, and then signed. The Velvets didn't need them anymore. Andy was less than thrilled at the rebuff from Lou Reed, and their relationship was strained for a time after that. Genesis. 
said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. Every time she puts on the radio, there was nothing going down at all. Not at all. Then one fine morning, she puts on a New York station. You know, she don't believe what she heard. In his own telling, Lou got everything he could, a lot of great ideas from Andy. First and foremost, work hard. Lou, you're brilliant, but you're so lazy, Andy would scold him. Successful artists have to keep producing. Second, don't compromise. No self-censorship. Put it out there without apologies. We don't use art to comfort people. We use art to confront people. He took the advice. Back in those early days, Lou was a troubled, temperamental dope fiend. Eh, Kind of a jerk, to be honest. But after 1966, no one could call him lazy. His body of work is large and very impressive, and Lou Reed was never one to pull his punches either. The Velvets made four albums with Lou, two with John Cale and two without. Lou Reed went on to release 22 solo albums, including some real landmarks, Transformer in 1972, Rock and Roll Animal in 1974, and a huge favorite of ours, a great album from 1989, New York. He wrote and published a dozen or so books, collections of his lyrics and poems, short stories, commentary. He toured steadily right up to the final year of his life. Not just concerts, but lecturers, book signings, poetry readings. Lou was a worker, all right. Standing on the corner Suitcase in my hand Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest And me, I'm in a rock and roll band huh. Riding a studs back at Jim You know, those were different times all, all the poets, they studied rules of verse And those ladies, they rolled their eyes Andy Warhol's menagerie of celebrities and wannabes, the hang-around sybarites and socialites, the sexually ambiguous, the seriously frivolous, all of whom congregated at his silver loft called the Factory. When they did think of Valerie, which wasn't often, well, she was that angry woman out on the fringes of the scene. Andy passed on producing Valerie's play, but in characteristic Warhol fashion, he would dither and equivocate, kept shining her on with the small talk. What's more, he misplaced the only copy of the script. Between that and Andy's airy, vague excuses, uh, Valerie was about to go ballistic. Andy Warhol is a key cultural figure from the 60s. He mentored and influenced lots of great artists, musicians, actors, directors. Andy created a great scene. We did cover a lot of Andy's ideas back in episode 9 when we met Marshall McLuhan. Decades ahead of most people, Andy and Marshall understood this worldwide interconnected media environment that we all swim in nowadays. In the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. 
That phrase of Andy's sums up the social media age damn near perfect. Fifteen minutes of fame. The phrase is idiomatic, a cultural touchstone. All kinds of metal layers and permutations to it. How people hear it and interpret it has evolved over time, too. It's an idea that has serious miles on it, and yet it's still fresh, still gets deployed a lot. She's not a girl who misses much. Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. New York City. Monday, June 3rd, 1968. Valerie was up early, out to get her 15 minutes of fame. She made several stops, including the Brooklyn home of Margot Feeden, playwright and producer. Margot was an accomplished woman in a male-dominated profession. Valerie thought she might be receptive to the pitch. Margot was not unsympathetic at first, but Valerie blew any chance she might have had when she went off on a long, paranoid rant, brandished a gun, issued dark threats against Andy Warhol, and abruptly left. I need a fix, cause I'm going down, down to the bits that I left uptown. I need a fix, cause I'm going down. The minute Valerie was gone, Margot bolted the door and called the cops several times. Nobody took her seriously. How would you know what a loaded gun looks like? One death sergeant demanded of her. Valerie waited him out. When Andy arrived at the factory late in the afternoon, Valerie came in right behind him. They rode up together on the elevator. Andy noticed she was heavily dressed for a hot summer day, a little nervous maybe. Up on the balls of her feet was how he described it later. Quiet for a change. Up in the sixth floor loft... Valerie let about a minute go by. Then she pulled a 32 Beretta automatic out of the brown paper bag. While Andy was distracted by a phone call, uh, Valerie fired. The first two shots went wide. The third shot he took in the chest. Valerie figured he was dead. She turned on Mario Amaya, who had picked the wrong day to pay Andy Warhol a visit from London. She fired once and missed. Fired twice. That shot spun Mario around. The bullet miraculously passed through and through, and he was not badly injured. A third shot missed as Mario hauled his ass across the open loft to a back room where he barricaded himself in. That left Fred Hughes, a business associate of Andy's, alone, frozen in fear, standing by the elevator. Fred fell to his knees and begged Valerie for his life. Valerie pushed the elevator button. She turned on him and stood over Fred at point-blank range. She pressed the gun to his forehead and pulled the trigger. The gun jammed. She pulled her back up, a 22 Colt revolver out of the brown paper bag. And the elevator arrived. That's the elevator, Valerie. Just, just take it, Fred Hughes begged her. Valerie took it. A few hours later, she surrendered to a traffic cop about 10 blocks away.
just a perfect day. Drink sangria in the park, and then later, when it gets dark, we go home. Just a perfect day. Feed animals in the zoo. Only blind luck prevented a mass murder that day. Andy Warhol survived, barely. He spent five hours in emergency surgery and over two months recovering in the hospital. He was never the same after that, physically or emotionally. Eventually, Valerie Solanus was convicted on a pair of charges, assault and possession of an illegal firearm. She got three years, basically time served. It was back on the streets, by early 1971. Valerie Solanas continued to harass and threaten Andy Warhol for years afterwards. Andy died in 1987 at the age of 58, following routine gallbladder surgery. Upon medical review of his case, it was determined that his gunshot injuries from 19 years earlier contributed significantly to his demise. Valerie died about a year later of pneumonia she contracted while living on the streets of San Francisco. We went on this little side trip for two reasons. First, because it's a dark and weird story and we always find those hard to resist. Second, it provides further context for what things were like back then. We've said it before, and it bears repeating. By 1968, the summer of love and all the hippy-dippy good feelings were already very much a thing of the past. The 60s were rushing forward to a turbulent, angry anticlimax. 1968 was the inflection point, a turning of the tide. We have made the highly subjective, purely arbitrary decision that the MC5 is the first punk rock band ever. Honorable mentions to the Lou Reed and the Velvets and the Iggy Pops and the Stooges. They went on to be much bigger over time. But here at the beginning, we're going to go with the MC5. Oh, 
We define punk rock mostly in terms of attitude, rather than by a set of musical attributes. Punk rock is rock music that is intended to confront the listener, rather than comfort the listener. And the Motor City Five were nothing if not confrontational. To our modern ears, the MC5 sounds like a heavy rock outfit with Chicago blues and free jazz influences. They don't have that frenetic rat-a-tat-tat of late 70s, early 80s punk. But they had all the necessary attitude and then some. We'll end up in New York again, but it starts out in the Motor City. Over the suburbs of Detroit, bands were starting up. Parents had good paying jobs and instruments could be bought on time payment plans. Every high school had a band or two. Teen centers all across the area had dances with live bands every weekend. It felt like all of a sudden a new vibrant scene was happening. It was friendly, competitive, and we were right in the middle of it. 16-year-old Wayne Canvas was a big kid with a big, unruly mop of curly hair and a big chip on his shoulder. But he could play a mean guitar. Back when he was 11, Wayne bugged his mom for an instrument and started taking lessons. Mabel, a single mom who styled hair during the week and tended bar on the weekends to feed her two kids, Mabel scraped the money together. Wayne signed on with an old-school music teacher in his neighborhood. Together, they went through the Mel Bay guitar book, learning to sight-read, scales, and chords, practice, practice, practice. After putting in his time on the formal lessons, Wayne turned to his Chuck Berry 45s on his bedroom record player. He taught himself to play along. Then, in 1964, along came the Rolling Stones, and that was it. Wayne knew his path in life. He found some musical comrades, and the four of them called themselves the Motor City Five. They actually became a quintet when another big guy with a big mop of hair, Rob Derminer, joined up as their frontman and vocalist. Rob Derminer became Rob Tyner, Wayne Canvas became Wayne Kramer, and along with Fred Sonic Smith on rhythm guitar, Michael Davis on bass, and Dennis Thompson on drums, they formed the original lineup of the MC5.
A little more about the MC5, and we love these guys. They were active from 1964 to 1972. They recorded first for Elektra, then for Atlantic, then on Columbia. Three albums, all good records by the way, that really deserve to do better. They had some capable, influential people championing them. We've met Danny Fields, and by the way, we really recommend a great documentary about him called Danny Says. John Landau took over creative management in 1970 and produced the second MC5 album back in the USA. A little aside, a couple of years after the MC5 fell apart, John Landau started managing this scruffy singer-songwriter dude from the Jersey Shore he saw in a club one night. That one worked out pretty well. With John Landau managing him, Bruce Springsteen sold a few records over the years. So, the MC5 were just ahead of their time, really. Three different record labels took them on, but nobody really knew what to do with them. The material was there. This was a damn good rock and roll band. But for whatever reason, not much time, effort, thought, certainly not much money went towards getting the MC5 on the airwaves and noticed. Similar story with the Velvets and the Stooges, by the way. Dumb, short-sighted, ultimately counterproductive, and hardly unusual in the record biz. After the third record, the MC5 limped along for a while longer until the outlaw lifestyle caught up with them. John Sinclair, Wayne Kramer, and Michael Davis all did prison terms in the 70s on drug charges. Wayne got out of prison in 1978. That's when the seeds he planted with the MC5 really came to fruition. Devo and The Clash put out their first albums. The Ramones put out Road to Ruin. The year before, never mind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols. Television put out Marquee Moon. Blondie and the Talking Heads broke out. The Patti Smith group hit their stride with their ass-kicking third record, Easter, on and on. And a lot of great bands from later decades also have the MC5 in their musical DNA. Sonic Youth, Faith No More, Soundgarden, lots of examples. As we put this chapter together in late 2018, the MC5 were nominated for the fifth time to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They didn't make it. We hope they get another shot. What's more, if they do, we will use our podcast pulpit here to advocate for their induction. Fingers crossed. We'll see. thing about the MC5 before we move into the next section. In a really generous act of mentorship and solidarity, they let this awkward, dirt-poor trailer park kid named Jim Osterberg hang out with them. Made him kind of a mascot. After about a year of that, Jim took on a stage name and started his own band, and the MC5 supported Iggy Pop and the Stooges right from the start, all the way. They let the Stooges open for them at all their local shows and do whatever the fuck they wanted. 
they cornered Danny Fields and basically told him, look, you're managing the Stooges now, too. And Danny got it done. He got the Stooges a deal with Electra Records. Iggy didn't have much time for all the lefty politics. He listened politely, even sympathized at times, but the whole street-level revolutionary thing, it didn't engage him, didn't pull him in. He had uh, other motivations. The MC5 were cool with that, and what mattered was Iggy shared their musical approach, raw, unfiltered, and completely unafraid, and brilliant, fucking brilliant. Whether you think Iggy's an absolute train wreck or the greatest thing ever, if you're at the show, you can't look away. He demands your attention. The MC5 did us all a favor when they helped the Stooges get things off the ground. Iggy Pop was, still is, amazing, completely in the moment, and nowhere else when he performs. Iggy Pop! Amen! Oh, I just put this on. This isn't on your playlist either. Amen is right! A street gang with an analysis. That's what Ben Moria called it. Moria got around. He will come up again. Ben Moria. He was friendly with Valerie Solanas even put out a pamphlet supporting her after the Warhol shooting. The reason we bring him up right here, Ben was a founder and a leader, well, to the extent that anarchists actually have founders and leaders. Anyhow, Ben Moria helped start a loose collective of anarchists on New York's Lower East Side. They called themselves Up Against the Wall, motherfucker. Motherfuckers, for short. They were known as the Black Mask Collective as well. You can't draw a straight line between them, but the Black Mask slash motherfuckers can be seen to some extent as forerunners of today's Antifa. They could also be described as a tougher, more militant version of the San Francisco Diggers, a street gang with an analysis. We mentioned John Sinclair a moment ago. In the early days in Detroit, John managed the MC5. Well, wait, he was an anarchist too, so John didn't want to be called a manager. Uh, is this getting tedious? Anyhow, John Sinclair booked gigs and repped for the MC5 back in the day. When he wasn't doing that, he was a founding member of a Detroit anarchist collective called Trans Love Energies. 
One night, John had a stoned conversation with Huey Newton, founder of the Black Panther Party. Following up on a suggestion from Huey, Translove rebranded themselves as the White Panther Party, an allied collective of anti-racist white kids in Detroit. The MC5 became the house band for the White Panthers. on the culture by any means necessary, including rock and roll, dope, and fucking in the streets. The anarchist revolutionary connection would prove to be trouble when the MC5 caught what should have been a big break, headlining at Bill Graham's Fillmore East on the day after Christmas 1968. We'll skim over the details because we covered this story very well when we interviewed Wayne Kramer, founding member, guitarist, and songwriter for the MC5 on our sister podcast, Deeper Digs and Rock. Also, we highly recommend Wayne's memoir titled The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, the MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. Links are in the show notes. Let's just put it this way. The motherfuckers, that street gang with an analysis, well, this time they came up with a really shitty dead wrong analysis. Instead of fighting the pigs and the establishment, they turned on their allies. A few songs into the MC5 set, a bunch of them bum-rushed the stage, trashed equipment, and roughed up the musicians before they ran them off. Outside the stage door, more of the motherfuckers attacked the MC5 as they tried to get in their limo and escape. Wayne stayed behind and tried to talk, tried to understand, tried to reason with them. It just got uglier. Finally, for his own safety, a couple of the bigger anarchists grabbed him up and half-pushed, half-carried him a couple of blocks away. Get in the cab and get the fuck out of here, they shouted as they left him. When it happened, something snapped inside, made me want to hide. All alone on my own, all alone on my own. I stood up on the stand with my eyes shut tight. This was a prime example of the failure of the 60s militant mindset. They attacked their own comrades. We were on the same side, but they turned their revolutionary zeal against us. We weren't the people perpetrating the war in Vietnam. We weren't denying African Americans their rights or polluting the air and water. We weren't corrupt politicians in Washington, D.C. We were a band that supported the same causes they did, because they were our causes too. The motherfuckers were fragmenting the mass youth movement better than the police or the FBI ever could have. We'll give Wayne Kramer the last word about it. So, we checked out the scene on the Lower East Side streets. Now let's take in the view from the Park Avenue suites.
what she wants to do. She knows what she wants to do, and I know I'm faking it. I'm not really making it. Bookends came out to critical acclaim and huge sales in the spring of 1968, ten weeks to the day after the release of the Graduate soundtrack. Between the two records, Simon and Garfunkel held the number one spot on the album charts for 16 straight weeks. What's more, having two runaway hit albums out there at the same time gave a big boost to the back catalog. Millions of units shipped and sold. At one point during 1968, all four Simon and Garfunkel LPs were on the charts simultaneously. These guys were in Beatles territory now in terms of sales and chart position. And like the Beatles, their appeal was broad and deep. As the year went on, Simon and Garfunkel kept reaching into new demographics, finding new audiences. Even your parents, if you had cool parents anyway, thought they were good. The cool English teacher at your high school was the one who played Simon and Garfunkel records during study period. A while back, we ran a short clip about Iggy Pop from Almost Famous. Uh, right now, we're thinking of another scene, the one where our hero's older sister tries to convince their mom that rock music really is art and it's worth taking seriously. To make her point, she breaks out a copy of Simon and Garfunkel's bookends. And to help her mom and her heartbroken little brother understand, understand why she has to leave home now, she plays this song for them on the family stereo. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. Some real estate here in my bag So we bought a pack of cigarettes And this is pies And walked off to look for America Paul Simon is a private guy. He puts out an album every few years. He's a perfectionist. He works his ass off making those records. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of studio time. Then he tours in support of it. Once that is done, he drops back out of view to write and record the next one. <laughs> Lather, rinse, repeat. It's a lifelong pattern. In his interviews, Paul is usually pretty direct. As you might well expect, he's bright and thoughtful. And he's witty, a lot funnier than people sometimes realize or give him credit for. But he's careful. He weighs his words, not given to burying his soul in public. If he doesn't want to talk about something, he will just shut it down. But ask him about songwriting, and he has a lot to say. He is positively effusive on the topic. If you let him, Paul Simon will give you a masterclass on the craft and process of writing good songs. Robert Hilburn got hundreds of hours of the stuff on tape. Then he distilled it down and honed it into a strong narrative. The book is Paul Simon, The Life. We love it, and every Paul Simon fan should have a copy. Here's some of Hilburn's discussion of the song, America. And the 
the images in the song were based on his own travels. All the way back to the summer he had hitched to California and through to the scores of cities, big and small, he had visited while touring. Interestingly, the song is one of the rare pop songs that has no rhymes. It's all straight prose. Nobel Prize winning poet Derek Walcott called it one of his favorite Simon songs. He particularly liked the line, and the moon rose over an open field for its zen-like elegance. Simon and Garfunkel's 1968 fall tour was 33 dates in just over two months. They netted $425,000. That would be well north of $3 million in 2019. Around that same time, the National Academy of Recording Arts announced that Bookends and the lead single Mrs. Robinson were both up for a slew of Grammy Awards. It was a big year for them, as big as it gets. The triumph must have been especially sweet for Paul Simon. Bookends had not been easy for him. All through 1967, he had struggled mightily with writer's block. But he powered through and come out on the other side with his best work yet. Paul's confidence soared. It was, he said in later years, like sitting on top of the world. But as we said up near the top, there were contrarians and naysayers in some corners of the music press. Robert Christgau, that grumpy and brilliant curmudgeon, crapped all over bookends in his Village Voice column. Rolling Stone had high praise for a couple of the songs, especially America, but their overall review of the album was lukewarm. The shimmering production, the professionalism, and emphasis on craft struck some writers as phony and inauthentic, uh, trying too hard to be nice. Uh, we get that, to a certain extent, anyway, but we still think it's a bullshit take. We hasten to add, as the years went on, a lot of these writers, even Chris Gow, softened their critique of Paul Simon's work. Eventually, they came around to recognize the honesty and empathy of his lyrics and the wonderful diversity of his musical influences. We noted earlier that Paul was savvy when it came to the business of music. He paid attention to the industry, to what people were saying and writing. He read all the reviews, good and bad. Some of it hurt. Some of the criticism really caught him. But over the last couple of years, he'd learned to be resilient, to believe in his ability, and to fight his way through. Out on tour, that fall, he scribbled down some words on the back of an air sickness bag, expressing some of these feelings in a story. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. 
All lies and jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. To us, this is timeless. It's something expressed in our most favorite songs, the songs we turn to when we're feeling hurt, lonely, or sad, when we feel the weight of whatever life might be throwing at us. And through that song, we find a weary, stubborn sort of optimism, the will to get back in the ring. We have our own shorthand for it. We call it ever hopeful and ever blue. Now, it's all too easy to go overboard with this kind of expression, and it ends up syrupy and sentimental, or even worse, it becomes preachy. In The Boxer, by telling a rich, detailed story that starts in the first person but ends in the third person, Paul Simon deftly avoids that trap. Let's bring up that final verse, which is about as good an example of ever hopeful and ever blue as you will ever find. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. Mm. But the fighter still remains. Then that magnificent production takes over. The Boxer is a powerful, sweeping recording that rivals the Beatles a day in the life in its richness and complexity. Right here, a tip of the hat to Roy Halley. Roy engineered most of Paul's recordings over the years. The Boxer was one of the first songs recorded on 16 tracks. Over a hundred hours of studio time went into it, with Roy at the helm all the way through. That powerful ride-out fades sweetly into a gentle coda, a restatement of the acoustic guitar intro, played beautifully by Paul in Nashville session cad Fred Carter Jr. The Boxer was released as a single in the early spring of 1969, and it rocketed straight into the top ten. The B-side was Baby Driver, a fun little folk rocker sung in close harmony, yet another nod to the influence of the Everly Brothers. Simon could crank out stuff like this in his sleep. He could fill up the rest of the new album with upbeat and consequential cuts like Baby Driver and get it out in time for Christmas. The suits at Columbia would love it and the fans would eat it up. It would have been very 
easy and very profitable, but Paul had no interest in simply turning a crank. Like we said, they were in Beatles territory now. Simon and Garfunkel's incredible commercial success afforded them complete artistic freedom, final say on everything. And no matter what they did, Columbia would back it with all their considerable resources. Paul was brimming with confidence and in a rare and enviable position for an artist. By God, he was going to carpe fucking diem this thing. Opportunities like this don't come along twice. Paul had another song teed up. He'd been working on it since the beginning of the year. He played an unadorned version on acoustic guitar for Roy Halley, and Roy was enthusiastic. It was a gentle, gospel-tinged number, a secular hymn. Paul liked it, liked it a lot, but he didn't think it had much commercial potential. It was a great song for Artie's voice, though, and he was eager to try that out in the studio. But everything was on hold because the movie star Bug had bitten Art Garfunkel. After the success of The Graduate, director Mike Nichols was hot property. His next job was a real plum gig, directing the movie version of Catch-22, Joseph Heller's biting absurdist World War II novel. Nichols had enjoyed working with Simon Garfunkel on The Graduate, and he offered them both acting parts in the new movie, which had a large ensemble cast. Paul and Artie were both admirers of the book, so they happily said yes. Paul had a bit part that ended up on the cutting room floor. Artie's role was far more substantial. He's built forth in the on-screen credits. The film was way behind schedule, and Art was stuck in Mexico on set for pretty much the whole first half of 1969. He flew up to L.A. in May for the Grammy Awards ceremony, where Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson won Record of the Year, and flew right back to Mexico the next day and stayed there for another month. Art's movie star ambitions had put the new album on hold. Paul's mood alternated between sad resignation, expressed in the song The Only Living Boy in New York, and seething resentment. In late June, Artie wrapped up shooting in Mexico. Work began in earnest on what would become Simon Garfunkel's fifth album. Relieved at, finally, being able to work again, Paul set aside his resentments for now. Los Angeles this time. Roy Halley had made LA his new home, and Paul's backing band of choice, the famed Wrecking Crew, was also based there. Art knew all too well that Paul took his time in the studio. He took out a three-month lease on a big funky house in Laurel Canyon, a real Hollywood Hills musician's pad. 
Late one night after work, Paul and Artie and a bunch of musicians were hanging out there smoking and drinking, telling stories and cracking jokes. Paul's brother, Eddie, started banging away rhythmically on a piano bench. Soon, others joined in, clapping along, clicking silverware, pounding away on boxes or whatever else was handy. Paul loved what he was hearing, so he clicked on his tape machine and let it run. He took the tape to Roy Halley, and Roy turned it into a three-minute drum loop. That busy, propulsive rhythm bed became the basis for Cecilia, one of four hit singles off the upcoming album. Nowadays, recording artists very commonly build songs just like this, and Cecilia is one of the earliest adoptions of that technique. Simon's songwriting would very famously take in Latin American and African influences and flavors. El Condor Pasa was where he stopped dipping his toe in those influences and really dove in, adding his own wistful, lovely words to a Peruvian folk melody. In another foreshadowing of later events, he had American musicians play the basic tracks, but the feel just wasn't there, so he obtained the rights to the original recording and had Roy Halley simply dub in the Simon and Garfunkel vocals. And one more piece of foreshadowing. Paul Simon sings the verse, and Art Garfunkel sings the chorus. They are both on the track, but never at the same time. Some of it was put there intentionally, some of it just happened. The Bridge Over Troubled Water album crawls with clues about what was coming next for Simon and Garfunkel. around the mad maelstrom of events, all the changes in music and culture and technology that took place all around the world in the late 1960s, we decided to kind of break things down by region. So we talked about London and the mod scene, and then Jimi Hendrix gets off the plane there, Memphis Soul and Chicago Blues, Nashville Country, five summers in Los Angeles, and a brief and hopeful summer of love in San Francisco and New York City where we tried to take in the view from both Park Bench and Park Avenue. Everything that is in America is in New York. Hell, just about everything that is in the world is in New York. And what's more, it's all crammed into one place, skinny little Manhattan Island. 
and it all seemed ready to burst at the seams as the decade lunged towards its conclusion. Gee, but it's great to be back home. Home is where I want to be. I've been on the road so long, my friend. And if you came along, I know you couldn't disagree. It's the same old story. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I get slandered. Nineteen sixty-nine was the turning point for everything. Before that, it looked like the sixties was going to change the world, that everything was going to go this way, but instead, everything went that way. They might have been righteous, and they turned out to be right, especially when it came to Vietnam. But the angry analysis of the new left revolutionaries couldn't be sustained. For a second there, it looked like it might catch on. But it didn't. It never made it out of the 60s as a mass movement. Who knows? Maybe it would have, given the chance, but that wasn't going to happen. The backlash from the establishment was ferocious. New left leaders were routinely harassed, often imprisoned, and sometimes hunted down and killed. And as Wayne Kramer points out correctly in our view, the lefties spent entirely too much time infighting and going after each other. Uh, that sure as hell didn't help. What we do know is the shit just kept piling on. All through 1969, violent, unsettling events just kept rushing at us. And the backlash began in a big way. As we said back in episode 15, in 1969, a powerful riptide started pulling everything back out to sea. In January, the Nixon administration took power, and politically, America lurched sharply to the right. The savagery in Vietnam continued unabated and escalated into neighboring countries. At home, a war on drugs was declared. Cops and DAs, federal, state, and local, had even more leeway to crack down, more power to ruin people's lives, and that's exactly what they started doing. Black Panthers and Weathermen and others started fighting back, and the police response, especially against the Panthers, was swift and deadly. All the fear and anger was seeping into the culture, nowhere more so than in rock music. 60s historian Todd Gitlin put it this way in his book, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. The rhetoric of showdown and recklessness prevailed. The end always lay near. The sight guy screamed until it was hoarse. Most Americans alive then had never experienced such a troubled time, had never seen their country so divided and weary. As they finished up the album in late 1969, Paul and Artie were feeling divided and weary too. Here's Peter Ames Carlin from his 2017 biography of Paul Simon. They were both tired. Paul was tired of having Artie and Haley insist on making his songs so pretty. Although string sections and the layers of echo putting a shimmer on tunes he thought would sound better with a little mud on their shoes. Artie was sick of working within the boundaries of Paul's desires and needs. So there they were, finally at absolute loggerheads, unable to sing together 
they settled for silence. All right, one final piece. Let's just let the music do the talking here for a moment. draft of history, the musical reply to the chaos and violence to the dashed hopes of 1969, was an offer of comfort and healing. Released at last to the general public in late January 1970, Bridge Over Troubled Water, the single and the album, or the first response, the first comment on the closing of the decade. A secular hymn, an affirmation of the power of love and friendship, a simple loving expression, I'm on your side. When pain is all around, what will get you through is empathy and a sharing of the emotional burden. Bridge Over Troubled Water actually debuted in October of 1969 on a CBS television documentary. The program was a messy flop. Very few people saw it, and that's about the only thing that kept it from being a career-ending disaster. But Simon Garfunkel played the new song live at every stop during a short tour that fall, and the response was electrifying. It was a solo turn for Artie, under a lone spotlight accompanied by pianist Larry Nechtel. For nearly everyone in the audience, it was the first time they had ever heard it. Each time the song ended, the response was the same. Stunned silence for a couple seconds, followed by a thunderous standing ovation. At the first show during Bridge, Paul took a break, smoked a cigarette, and watched from the wings. When it was over, Artie took a deep bow, acknowledged Larry, who took a bow, and then Artie took another bow. Paul waited patiently for his turn. It didn't come. Same thing every show. All through the tour, even on the final date at Carnegie Hall with Paul's mother in the audience, ever the professional... Paul kept his anger to himself, but inside he seethed. What about the guy who wrote the song? But really, it didn't matter in the end, because once the record was out, the song took on a life of its own. Sail on, silver girl Sail on, my Your time has come Robert Hilburn, one more time. For the rock generation, the 1960s was a decade of great promise and deep disillusionment, a time of Camelot and the Vietnam War. The emotional toll was heavy, and much of the most memorable music reflected the volatility of a world that appeared all the more out of control 
because it was often seen through a drug-infused haze. The start of the new decade offered hopes of a second chance, and some of the most inspiring songs of 1970 resonated with comfort and reassurance. Hilburn's right, of course. He goes on to cite the Beatles' own secular hymn, Let It Be, released in March, and James Taylor's Fire and Rain from the summer of 1970. The first big hit by a former Beatle was George Harrison's expression of faith and humility, My Sweet Lord, released December of that year. Early the following year, Carol King released You've Got a Friend. There was still plenty of anger in the zeitgeist, but it was clear now, from songs like these and from the huge public appetite for them, that people were ready to turn away from the anger and hurt outside. People were ready to look inside for answers and turn to friends and loved ones for comfort. Bridge Over Troubled Water was the song that fit the times. And it had some legs, that's for sure. Since 1970, there have been over 150 covers. Bridge is the fifth most recorded song in history. The single and the album both went multi-platinum in 1970, spent months at number one, and were both still on the charts years later. But... We still like the boxer better. Much better. Bridge Over Troubled Water fits the times, but to us, the resilient, ever-hopeful, and ever-blue message of the boxer is timeless. And all the little production touches on the boxer, the explosive snare drum, the bass harmonica, they all perfectly serve the song without overwhelming it. On Bridge, all the production sounds overcooked, a little too gimmicky, during the recording sessions for Bridge, Paul hated the string arrangements. He thought it was sickly sweet and cloying, and he was right. In our view, The Boxer is one of those songs, like A Rolling Stone, Satisfaction, Good Vibrations, A Day in the Life, songs that are iconic and indispensable, central to the rock and roll story. Bridge Over Troubled Water, as lovely as it is, doesn't quite make it onto that short list. We have nothing but praise for the album, though. Bridge Over Troubled Water is a really complete and satisfying listen all the way through. Everything that is great about Simon and Garfunkel, their sweet singing, their wry humor, their professionalism and smart, tight execution, it's all on display on this record. Four great hit singles come off it. The Boxer, Bridge, plus Cecilia and El Condor Pasa. And we really love how those latter two songs drop cool little hints about what's to come for Paul Simon in later years. Some world music flavor, the innovative compositional techniques. They needed another song, and Paul and Artie couldn't agree on what it should be. They compromised and threw in a live recording of Bye Bye Love done in Ames, Iowa, not far from Shenandoah, where the Everly Brothers grew up. The album closes out with a solo vocal from Paul, Song for the Asking, which very much feels like a gentle, melancholy apology and goodbye. So, it came all the way back around for these two. It started with Paul and Artie from Queens, harmonizing like the Everly Brothers, and then Paul heading out on his own, and that's how it ended. Bookends. Simon and Garfunkel did one more big tour in 1970, and that brought them all the way back around too, closing with a big outdoor show at the Forest Hills Tennis Club in New York, where the U.S. Open is held every year. Walking distance from the Queens neighborhood 
where they both grew up. When it was over, Paul didn't make any big public announcements about it. That's not how he does things. That fall, he simply let Clive Davis at Columbia know he would be going forward on his own without Art Garfunkel. Clive was not happy. He told Paul it was a mistake, a big mistake, to leave Art Garfunkel behind. Paul liked and trusted Clive, and he came out of that meeting badly shaken, troubled about his future. But he stuck to his vision and went on to have a second act and a third act as a solo artist. Paul's solo records in the early 70s didn't smash up the charts quite like the Simon and Garfunkel albums did, but they sold plenty. And in our view, as good as the Simon and Garfunkel albums are, Paul's solo records are even better. He just keeps writing songs that are full of tuneful, catchy hooks, but at the same time, they are smart and eclectic, full of surprises. Paul Simon belongs to that small elite group of artists from the rock era whose music will outlive all of us. After that Forest Hills show, Paul and Artie walked out together, speaking quietly about nothing much. Then they shook hands and headed off alone to their respective cars. Walking behind them, their road manager, Mort Lewis, saw the whole thing. He could tell. It was over. Something about it, their body language, the formality of the goodbye, something about it just seemed like it was final. Paul Simon had come full circle and was leaving Queens behind, headed back out on his own again. And that brings us all the way back round two. Okay, we've got a few more stories to tell before we flip that calendar into 1970, but that will have to come on another day. In the meantime, thank you for coming around and spending time with us. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been a Rock and Roll Archaeology from Pantheon Podcasts. Thank you again. Keep up the rockin', and we will see you in episode 18. social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. 
written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.